Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opens in movie theaters nationwide this weekend for Harrison Ford's fifth and final installment. I spoke to Raiders of the Lost Ark star Karen Allen in 2017 when she called to promote her indie film, Year by the Sea. Hello? Hey, is this Karen? Yes, it is. Hey, this is uh, Jason Fraley at WTOP in D.C. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. This is an honor. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to talk. My hometown. <laughs> yeah, I was digging into that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you were Duval? I was Duval, yeah. yeah. And then I moved into D.C. when I was 20, maybe 21, and lived there and started all my work in the theater there. That's so awesome. All right, well, then we, we will definitely, we'll go into a little of that, app, but let's talk the movie first, okay? Okay. A Year by the Sea. This is based on the, the New York Times bestseller. I just watched the movie. You've spent a lot of the last probably year living it, but give our, give our listeners a quick rundown, premise here. Yes, uh, we've been, uh, it's just opening now, but for the last year we've been going across the country to film festivals and um, showing the film, and it's the story is, it, it based on a, True story, uh, Joan's memoir, Joan Anderson's memoir, she wakes up at 55 and her children are grown and one of her sons has recently married and she reaches out to her husband about, you know, things that they might do in their future, but he's still very much locked into himself as a, as a, you know, into his career and the direction he's moving in. And in fact, he's accepted a job in Kansas, they they live on the East Coast. She's accepted a job in Kansas without even talking to her about it, which comes as a, you know, an unpleasant surprise to her. Uh, naturally, naturally. Yeah, and and um, she suddenly feels as though she's she feels lost. She feels as though she's come to the end of a certain part of her life, which had been raising her children and where her world sort of revolved around their needs and her husband's needs and the needs of, you know, looking after a home. And she doesn't, she looks into her own future and has no idea what, where she wants to go or what it is she has to offer. And, and she had been a published writer at, at a younger point in her life. And she put that on a back burner thinking that she would get back to it and 25 years has gone by and and she just doesn't she feels as though she's lost her voice she doesn't even know what she has to say anymore so she makes a a kind of impulsive decision to leave and not go to Kansas with her husband and to go that they sell their house and she decides she's going to go and live in a little shack on the coast of 
uh, New England, up on the Cape in Massachusetts, and she's going to spend whatever time there she needs to to get to know herself and to reflect on her life and, and see if she can find a way forward. And she gets there and she meets a woman who is a psychologist who was, uh, actually she was Eric Erickson's wife, Joan Erickson, right. uh, both kind of very well known in that community. And the, the woman becomes a, a mentor for her, which really did happen in life. And they stayed friends until her death. And uh, and she meets a lot of other people and finds herself in a lot of circumstances in which she has to reach out and, and, and help people and or when people kind of reach out and help her figure out a way to survive there and um, be independent. And it's a, it's a journey for her. And she comes through the journey knowing herself better and and not wanting to end her marriage, but in fact wanting to renegotiate her marriage, wanting to get to know her husband again and allow him to get to know the part of her that she feels she'll be carrying into the future, which is more than, you know, the the the, 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 the mother and more than the, you know, the cook and the person right. who makes the beds and, you know, more than, than that. She's kind of almost like willing to let go of that role and find a much more vital part of herself. Uh, to move forward in life, and and uh, it's just a it's a story about transitions and about you know how we how we navigate them. How we're all unfinished like the shoreline and need to transcend ourselves constantly. I think is your line that she writes at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it's it's great. No, um, and it's uh, I've took the whole movie to me is sort of like that that um the the vision quest that you and uh, you and Joan um talk about and how you know you say once a year the Navajos spend twenty four hours in the wilderness. You know that they're trying to find the truth emerging from the silence. The whole movie kind of feels like that. It's kind of a quiet movie that allows us to to kind of reflect on that for our own lives. So that I, that's what I really dug about it. I'm so glad. When did you find the book? Did you were you reading it or, or did did you No, no, I didn't I was not familiar with Joan's work. Um I was just at home in New York and and um I was sent the script and I read the script and and was very taken by her story and I literally half an hour later went out to a bookstore and found Joan's first book Year by the Sea <laughs> and um brought it home and read that and I just found her very unsparingly honest about herself and and you know she just had a, a wonderful way of uh, taking me through that journey, you know, scripts are so often they're just the bare bones of a story, right. and this this book really fleshed that story out for me so much. And uh, a few days later, I met with the director Alexander Janko, and uh, he and I had a wonderful conversation about the character and about life and about. And I left there thinking, oh. Please, I hope they ask me to do this film. I, I just hadn't been quite as excited about uh, a film in a while. And um, maybe a week or so later, they asked me to do the film. And then a few days after that, I was sitting having lunch with Joan Anderson, and we spent about four hours together talking, talking, talking. And she telling me more and more and more about her, her story and uh 
uh, I, you know, I was f- f- quite delighted to just dive into this particular uh, story because I, I think it's a rare, you know, it's a rare kind of film that that uh, we don't get to see very often. We don't really get to be with people of 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 that age who are trying to still figure out their lives and 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 move move forward. So there's four people in the film that are over the age of 60. Right. And um I I think that's it's unusual. Every once in a while there'll be a a film, you know, that's maybe in that world, but right. um uh, I thought it was a rare opportunity, and you know we're we're finding in in people's response whether it's people in their 30s or 40s who who see this film through you know the struggles of their own parents, or whether it's people in the baby boomer generation who are living it. There has been this incredible connection to the film. I mean, I've never been in a film where at the end of the film, people come up and throw their arms around me and thank me for making a film. It's. I think there's a there's a you know it, 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 in the, in the way that Joan is searching for her voice. I feel like there's a whole generation of audience that are searching for where is where is our voice? Right. Where's where's our movies about what we're going through right now? I'm with yeah, you. I'm with there, you. There, there needs to be you know, more. There's, there's very little out there, and I think what's what's really amazes me is I think that the baby boomer audience we grew up. As moviegoers, you know, from the time we right. were little, you know, we looked forward to going to the movies. Right. And while the younger generation that used to be the demographic, now they're watching everything on their little iPads and their, <laughs> on their iPhones to some extent. Right. And, and this baby boomer generation still loves to go to the movies. We still like to go and sit in theaters. So I think that there's a world of audience out there that really is looking for films that more deeply connect to their own worlds. Um, so it, it feels it feels it feels really lovely to be part of a of a film that is is doing that. I, I agree entirely. There needs to be more movies um, like this that that treat it that treat sort of that phase of life um, with the the delicacy and grace and seriousness. That I mean, yeah, there's comic relief in the movie, but you know, I, a lot of times you get movies about that baby boomer you know generation now that they either just play it for straight you know slapstick like the bucket list or something. But there's not that serious thing like you guys are addressing here. So I think there need to be more movies and more roles like this. Yeah. It's- it's really it's kind of a soulfulness. It's yeah. a soulfulness. It's because actually it's more with Joan. It's more of an inner journey. Like she really wants to change. She really wants to. She wants to pull away these sort of layers that have restricted her and made her feel stuck in her life. And she wants to move towards. You know, it's that little moment in the film where he says, "You've changed. What's wrong with you? You've gone wild." And right. she says, "No, I think I'm just starting to find." You know, the part of myself, you know, that I might, you know, that part of herself that she really would like to be, you know, it's like she has this, she has this feeling inside of her that there is the more joyful, free, open, embracing 
receptive person. And she, through all of the stresses and strains of 25 or 35 years of worrying about <laughs> everything under the sun that yeah. parents worry about, she's kind of lost that spark, you know, and she wants that spark back. She knows it's in there somewhere, and she's she's trying to, to you know, lose all of those, you know, all the stuff that's getting in the way of, of her own, you know, happiness, really. Yeah. How how much how how much of you is it, everything you're just saying? I'm wondering if that's part partly what you're going through too. Like, how much of yourself is in that in terms of you know? I, I know you. I think I, you had a son like in 1990, but that's yeah. that's been what 27 years ago. So do, do you sort of relate to that? You know what uh, what the character Joan in in the movie? You know, sort of the empty nester trying to reinvent yourself. Well, you know, Joan, Joan and my lives are, are different in the sense that um, I, I did not stay married. My, my husband and I separated when my son was just six. So through most of my raising of my son, I was a single parent because he also, through a lot of that, lived at quite a distance from us, um, uh, his, his dad, although he was very much a hands-on dad in, his, in the ways in which he could be. But um, I also never really stopped exploring creative things in my life, even when right. I did take a back, you know, when I stepped back away from doing a lot of the travel necessary to do big feature films, because I really wanted to be there raising my son, I created other things in, in my life that sort of I found very um, interesting and had always been interests of mine. And so I never really felt, I only have one child, which is a little easier than when you have two, three, four. Um, but I never felt like I put my own creative life on a back burner. But what I very much did relate to is that when they move out, when you know, when my son moved out and was suddenly out in the world on his own, there is this abyss. There is this, you know, I think it's a universal thing. I think we all feel it. And I know I have both friends who are going through it and friends who are dreading it as it approaches and friends who have gone through it and somehow gotten to the other side of it. Um, I think as much as people like to you know, act as though they're going to be relieved when their children are finally <laughs> out in the world, I think, you know, and there may be some relief, but, uh, you know, there's also this terrible sense of of what now? You know, what What now? Your life is so revolved around the well-being of your children and of the household and all of the million little things that go along with that. And you can go very easily into an identity crisis <laughs> when suddenly those things are, are removed. And it's not, it's not, you never really stop being a parent, but it's, you stop being a parent on a daily basis. And, and uh, we all then, you know, get thrust into, and I think it happens to men as well. Men often, you know, have stayed for the most part more engaged in the working world throughout the process. Um, not all, because we have men, you know, who are very involved in raising their children. But, um, you know, I, I think men maybe have it, maybe it happens in a delayed way um, when they, you know, when they retire. Or you know it happens in in a you know it, it comes to them through 
you know, their their wife who is maybe really struggling with it. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful conversation. And we find at the end of the film, you know, people have so much to share about yeah. their, you know, there have been people who said to us at the end of the film, oh, my God, I think you've saved our marriage. Which, <laughs> wow. You know, that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, and you, you know why I think that works is not, I mean, A, you treat the whole, you know, that whole, the whole movie's journey, uh, the arc with, with such, you know, truth and honesty but i think also it's because in the end there is that that sliver of hope and and i like th- i like that about it th- that it doesn't exactly go where you think it's gonna go you know there you have all the you kind of well we don't want to spoil it for the viewers so how can i dance around it but you know what i mean you kind of tease with you and and the fishermen that maybe yeah. there might be a thing there's even some double meaning in the dialogue when you say hey can you take me out and you really mean take me out on the water but it's, yeah. yeah but um but yeah but i but i like how you kind of flip that again on the end and 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 you got you and the husband you know you try to you try to do make it work so maybe that's why people come up to you at the end you know i don't know yeah i mean i loved doing that last scene with michael christopher because you know in the end we worked and worked and this the 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 film had a a couple of different endings and we didn't know exactly what we were going to do with it but we ended up just deciding to again kind of play with identity and you know when when uh when michael christopher's character robin says you know i i've gone you know, I've gone into therapy and I've discovered I'm a very angry young man, uh, yeah. angry old man. Yeah, he catches himself. And, yeah. says, oh. and, and they end up sort of re- reintroducing themselves to each other. Right. I think that that's such a lovely thing. It's sort of like, okay, we are who we are. We're all the all these things. And yet, hello, I'm Joan. You know? Right, right, right. Hello, I'm Robin. It's like... <laughs> I, I love, I, I think we all maybe love that idea that we can start over. It's such a, uh, a liberating thought that we, are, don't, that we aren't so mired in the baggage of the past and all the little minuscule things that have gone wrong. Um, you know, here and there, the misunderstandings or the moments of, you know, in which, you know, people moved in different directions that that there is a that there is a way to on some level take a deep breath set these things to the side to 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 be dealt with or to be forgotten and to just move forward with a sense of possibility Absolutely. Um, All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAP podcast.com I'm Bradley Trainer, and I'm Don McClain we have a podcast called Blinded by the Item a blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out it's a guessing game and you can play along the item might be like this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. You mentioned the, you mentioned the director, uh, Alexander Janko. Yeah. Um, 
he was a famous composer, right? He did yeah. My Big Fat Greek Wedding and a bunch of movies, but this, yeah. this I believe, is his directorial debut as it a director. Um, what was it sort of like um, watching his own maturation and, and uh, learning curve in that regard? You know, watching watching him uh, transition. I mean, sure, he's been around movies his whole life, but but you know, watching that in real time and helping him, you know, craft that 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 debut. It was extraordinary, and he is just uh, he's a very very warm. Uh, thoughtful, uh, just, you know, he was a wonderful first-time director to work with. He he had his whole heart and soul into this film, and he he was learning by the seat of his pants as he went. He had, you know, uh, the, the five of us, the five main actors, were there just in complete support of him. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, if I, I, I think, and he would say this too, you know, he was a, a first-time director has so many things that they're juggling, and because they're doing them all for the first time, it's, it's really, it's, it's a very steep learning curve. And um, I think that, you know, to have actors, Michael Christopher, as he paid the Americans, you know, to Celia Emery to, and, and Yannick Bizen, to have all of us, you know, who really were very clear and knew how to do our job. So he didn't really so much. He was there to help guide us, but he didn't so much as sometimes you do as a director really, really have to work, you know, very closely to help the actors develop these roles, he we had a week of rehearsal, and he did this wonderful work with us on the script. And uh, he was he's he has been I have to say he and Lara Goodnow, our, our producer, they have fought for this film with everything in them, and it's it's been so wonderful to see it now. You know, I've worked on a lot of independent films that, you know, some who never have seen the light of day and right. some that have had their little moment at a film festival and, you know, and but then, you know, kind of fade into, uh, you know, the ether. And, uh, you know, he has, he, they have not given up. They are just working, working, working and, and uh, want to bring this film to, they know, they know that an audience is out there for this film and they want to try to do everything they can to find it. Awesome. Well, it, it is a, it is a sweet, honest, um, and like you said, kind of rare movie. So I ho- invite our listeners to go check it out um, when it comes out. I think it comes out in D.C. maybe September 22nd. I think that's right. I think right. something like that. I think that that's yeah. right. But, um, but anyway, speaking of D.C., you grew up around here, right? You were you, Well, you bounced around a little as a kid, but you went to high school at, at Duval, which when, when I saw that pop up, I said, oh, my God, my high school played them in the playoff. <laughs> we, we beat them in a hook and yeah, ladder. we moved to... Um, Maryland when I was 10, and I went to Charles Carroll Junior High School and Duval High School, and then I moved to New York when I was 17, but I came back to D.C. when I was 21, and I went to Georgetown University, and I lived at DuPont Circle for a number of years, and I started to work in the theater there. I worked with the Washington Theater Laboratory and was involved with the Washington Project for the Arts, and uh, and then I lived over in Adams Morgan for a number of years. No way. Yeah. (laughs) Jumbo slice. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, no, it was, I, I, I will always think of D.C. as my creative home because, it was, you know, I think, you know, as a young person, you can kind of feel that you want to work in the world, in the art world, but you're never quite sure what you're 
medium is, and I was living in D.C. when I saw an extraordinary performance by a, an actor who was part of the Polish Theater Laboratory. And really my whole life turned on that, and I began to work in the theater in D.C. And, and uh, it was a, a really wonderful time, very creative time, 72, 3, 4, 5, in, in that era. And there was just a lot of lot going on in D.C., a lot of the very beginnings of work in the art world and, and work in the in music. Um, you know, there were great things. Emmy Lou Harris was there playing and yeah. Mary Chapin Carpenter. And there were, you know, I don't know if, if some of these clubs and stuff are still there, but it was all, even as a kid, we used to, when I was young, we used to sneak, you know, we would tell our parents we were going over to each other's houses or something, and we'd, we'd come into D.C. to go to great, like, clubs to see bands and so i had a real relationship uh to washington growing up that's so great that's so, well it is a really creative spot and then i know from there you kind of went out to lee strasberg institute in new york and, and all that stuff but t- connect it to our listeners how, how do you go from from all your 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 uh, i guess when you got bit by the bug here in dc to your debut in animal house that's what we all want to know well, it was it was actually very ser- it was serendipitous is what it was. I had moved. I moved, I finally left New York in seventy six in the summer. I, I mean D.C. I left D.C. in the summer of seventy six and moved to New York City with the idea of working in the theater. And I was studying at the Strasbourg Institute and with Stella Adler, and I just wanted to get a stronger, more traditional background in the theater because my training had been very from experimental theater companies. And um, I just walked through the lobby. I saw a three-by-five card on the wall. It said, Feature Film Casting College-Age Actors and Actresses. Send picture and resume to. And I just you know, put a picture and resume and put it in the mail to the address, and I got a call. And they said, we'd love to meet you for this film. I walked over to the address. It was Universal Studios in New York City on Park Avenue. I went up. The casting director strode over to me, and she said, I know you're not in the union. I know you don't have an agent, but I want you to come in and meet John Landis because you're my girl. Now, I don't know how often that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like one of those very rare things. Um, but and I, and I didn't have the part instantly, but she had just seen my picture and resume, saw that I had this background in the theater, saw that I had a kind of look that she was looking for for Katie, and um, I had to audition numerous times, and they flew me to Los Angeles, and I had to audition with Peter Riegert. And uh, but in the end, they asked me to do to do the role, and suddenly I was, you know, within a month, I was in Oregon shooting this film in Animal House, uh, uh, this role in Animal House, and I had, I had. Um, you know, no idea uh, that the film world was even a possibility because it was just a foreign world to me. I had never met anybody who worked on a film in my life. Um, so, you know, there again, you know, talk about seat of the pants. It was very <laughs> much just learning as I went. And fortunately for me, so many of the actors on that film were also doing their first film. So, you know, we were all in the same boat for the most part and helped helped each other. And John Landis was just an awful lot of fun to work with. And it was, you know, kind of him, he, he had done a couple of, you know, little, uh, you know, uh, indie kind of films, right. but this was his first real big film. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were all just, 
you know, we were just, we didn't know enough to be uh, intimidated by the process. <laughs> we just thought, this is fun, this is great. <laughs> Man, but see, that, whoever that casting director that walked over to you, okay. Well, okay. And, and, and the other casting director was Michael Chinich, and yeah. they were both... You know, they were both just, they were both young, they were young casting directors and they, you know, they were just, they wanted to kind of put together a cast that they, you know, thought would be unusual and, and uh, so they did, they did a beautiful job casting that film. Memories of it really quick, the actual shooting of it, like did you actually get to interact with Belushi and Tom Holtz, all those guys? Well, I never was in a scene with Bellucci, really, right. but I, but I did watch him work a lot. And whenever you know I wasn't in a scene, I was often on the set watching, just because it was so much fun. Like Katie doesn't go to the yoga party, but <laughs> I, I was there, like off screen, watching everybody have an awfully good time. And you know, I got to watch John just you know his spontaneity and his ability to just you know do the most outrageous you know, uh, thing that was, you know, available, you know, if you, you put something in his hand, you put, you know, put a jar of peanut butter in his hand, he, he knew <laughs> what to do with it. <laughs> oh, that's and, so great. Um, you know, so it was, it was, yeah, it was great. I, I, you know, I got to know all those guys. We still very often see each other. And sadly, uh, Stephen first just passed away and we've been all mourning his loss, uh, who played flounder. Yeah. Um, he, he had become a dear friend to us over the years. And, um, uh, but I, I see a lot of these guys, you know, quite, quite frequently we it was a, a bond that has remained absolutely and problem such, such great memories for you i'm sure and and all that frat house drinking helped you to drink all the boys under the table as marion ravenwood guess so. I guess <laughs> turning so. that I guess shot so. glass upside down <laughs> <laughs> although katie really was the voice of reason in yeah. that film she was the yeah, one yeah. i don't think we ever see her with right. a drink in her hand but right. <laughs> well, we, we gotta. Our, my listeners will kill me if we don't talk about Marion Ravenwood really quick. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, that, that's the one we're all gonna a hundred years from now remember you from. Um, what I, I love, what I loved about your character was it kind of flipped the old, you know, Humphrey Bogart Casablanca. Like you're you're Rick Blaine running your, the saloon. I love that. Um, but memories of memories of. Oh, I, hold on, what's that? Yeah, I sure. Know I have. I'm so sorry. I have another interview that's oh, starting right now. Oh crap! Could could you give me one quick soundbite on on Ra- Raiders really quick? Didn't you guys improv the scene? With, with the wedding dress and the knife and the hanger. Yes, 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 we yeah. did. We didn't improv it while we were shooting it, but we, Paul um, Freeman and I, I was never quite happy with how that scene was going, and, and so we went in and we kind of created that scene with each other, and then we showed it to Stephen, and, and he, he loved it. it. With the whole thing with me hiding the knife, pulling the knife, Paul starting to laugh, and, <laughs> you know, that was, that was something that was kind of invented on the fly. Oh, that's so great. Well, thanks for, I mean, all your movies from Scrooge to The Sandlot. I mean, we, lo- we love them all. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Everybody, it's uh, You're by the Sea, Karen Allen. Thank you so much. You've been more than generous. Thanks. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.